right, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you. If we've never met, my name's Jay. I'm a part of the team here. Um, I, uh, I took a little summer break these last three weeks, so my family, uh, Jenny and I and our two little kiddos, we were able to um, have some fun and uh, D- Disneyland, we took them to Disneyland, which was like fun for them, not that fun for... <laughs> no, it was actually awesome. Has anybody been to Galaxy's Edge? Any Star Wars fans did like the Rise of the Resistance? Holy smokes, what in the world? Incredible. I don't know what I'm talking about. Now I'm just talking, now I'm thinking about Disneyland and like how awesome and expensive it was. Okay, we are, uh, we've been on this journey, you guys, together through uh, the first book of the New Testament, the gospel. Gospel is a fancy word that means the good news. Uh, according to this writer, Matthew, who was one of Jesus' disciples. We've actually been in the Gospel of Matthew since December of last year, and on and off, and uh, we're through chapter 6. So we got 22 more chapters to go, and I have no idea how long it's going to take us. It might take us another year, another decade, 100 years from now, I don't know, but it's awesome, because it's the story of Jesus. So, Today, we sort of land the plane on one section of Matthew, and then next Sunday, we're going to continue in Matthew, but um, deep dive into one particular section. Uh, But as we land the plane, um, Jesus has these really profound, and for me personally, really convicting words for me on a very personal level, and um, we're going to jump into it. But to get into it, I want to share a brief story from my life, and it'll sort of set up, and I think in some ways, we'll all be able to relate. Uh, When I first started exploring the possibility of getting into full-time local church ministry, when I felt like God might be calling me um, to to give my life to serving in the local church, I began by interning at a church, interning at the church where I grew up. So I was a youth ministry intern working with high school students and middle school students. And we've got a bunch of you in the room who serve our high school and middle school students. So awesome, yes. Kudos to you. Thanks for serving them. Um, So I was an intern for a couple of years. So uh, my youth pastor, the youth pastor at the time, his name was James, amazing guy. He had a few of us, several interns. And every summer, we would go down to Mexico uh, on a a mission trip. And um, that's a part of our culture here. We call them go trips. And there are several every year. COVID obviously changed that. Um, But Kayvon's back. Kayvon, we're probably going to get go trips going again. Kayvon, are you still on sabbatical? Wow, he came, Kayvon is such a good Christian. He came to church during his sabbatical. Well done. Um, <laughs> so anyways, that's a part of our culture here at Westgate. It was a part of our culture uh, at the church where I interned. So every summer, we would take high school, middle school students down to Mexico, and we would build houses um, in these. We would partner, partner with a local church and help build houses. Now, here's what you need to know about me if you didn't know this already. I am not handy. Like, I see some of you on Facebook and Instagram building these, like, incredible, you know, like, backyard houses. And it's, like, amazing. I'm so envious. I am not handy. If you put a hammer in my hand, the first thing I think is, like, who invented a hammer? And then I start studying and reading books about it. But I don't know anything about, like, what to do with a hammer. Okay, so I go to Mexico, and the way it worked is all the interns would take a small group of high school, middle school students, and we'd be assigned a, per, a particular section of the house. So James, my youth pastor, is like, okay, Jay, you're going to take this group of students, and you're going to build this wall. And I, deep down inside, I'm so nervous. I'm like, I'm going to ruin 
this house. I don't know how to build the wall. So I'm stressing out. It's in the, you know, it's in the middle of summer in Mexico. It's hot. So I'm leading this group of students. I'm stressed out. I don't really know what I'm doing, but I am doing my best. I'm sweating and I'm all scraped and bruised. And the students and I were building this wall and we're working on it for like three, four hours. It's 100 degrees. I'm dehydrated. I'm exhausted. So seriously, like three, four hours into building this wall, I um, tell the students, you guys, man, I I need a water break. I'm about to pass out. So I sit down, grab a bottle of water. For literally, I'm thinking I'm going to take a five-minute water break. And the moment I sit down, my youth pastor, James, walks by. And he sees another intern, a fellow intern, good friend of mine, who had jumped into my team literally like five minutes ago. He goes to that intern and he says to him, dude, wall's looking good, man. Great job. You're working hard. And I'm sitting there drinking my water exhausted. And you, like, you're like me, right? You know exactly what I'm feeling in that moment. I'm like, no, it was me. You know, like... I wanted to be noticed. I wanted to be seen. I wanted the credit. I needed the acknowledgement. And so I remember for the rest of that day, I was just sort of wrecked mentally, emotionally. Like, I can't believe, why didn't you walk by at any point during the previous three hours when I was working hard for the Lord, you know? (laughs) Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus' words. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Not one of my favorite verses. Like, what? But, you know, I'm working so hard. I'm doing so much. This word righteousness uh, in the original language, it's sort of debated. It's kind of a complex word. But most scholars seem to agree with the general definition that it's a word that essentially means a right, whole, healthy, loving relationship between people and between God. So essentially when Jesus says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them, what he's saying is be careful not to pursue a right relationship with God and with others for the sake of being seen by others. Now, what you're going to see in the rest of this text is that Jesus is being very specific about very specific spiritual practices. We'll get into that here in a moment. But what I uh, want us to understand, because some of us might be like, well, I don't really try to do those specific things to be seen by others. But the reason this text matters is because the foundational truth that Jesus is trying to speak into our lives today is the same. It's not just about spiritual, churchy, Christian practices. It's about the intention of our hearts, our motivations. And at the end of the day, we'll get to this later, who gets the glory? Now, what you're going to find here is really interesting. This is sort of an introductory statement when Jesus says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. That phrase, practice your righteousness, is actually really specific. Uh, What you're going to see in the rest of Matthew chapter 6 is that Jesus gives, he touches on three key expressions of practicing righteousness. And I'll just give them to you right off the bat here. He's going to talk about giving to the needy, 
praying and fasting. So that's what Jesus means when he says, be careful not to practice your righteousness to be seen by others. He's specifically talking about giving to the needy, praying, and fasting. Now, these are not three random, arbitrary spiritual practices that Jesus chose. Remember, this, is, this story takes place in the first century Jewish Greco-Roman world. Jesus is a Jewish rabbi living in a Jewish Greco-Roman world. And at the time, in every Jewish town and city, the center of that town or city was the local synagogue. The local synagogue was essentially their equivalent to the local church. And the local synagogue at the center of every Jewish town or city was the center of that Jewish community's both religious and societal life. And so we don't really have this today, especially in the Silicon Valley. It's actually a little weird in culture at large if you go to church, right? Like when you go to your secular workplaces and some of us deal with this, it's like we're a little embarrassed to say, you know, what'd you do this weekend? It's like, oh, I went to church. Not all of us, but some of us, right? It's, the church is not really at the center of societal, cultural life here. But in the Jewish world, it was. Like the synagogue, the local synagogue or church was the center of the community. Now, when good Jewish people would go to the local synagogue week after week to worship and to learn and hear the word of God read and to learn from the rabbis, what they would be told is that to practice righteousness, in other words, as a good Jew, to live in right relationship with God and with others, there are three key practices you must maintain in your life. And those are the practices Jesus addresses here. So every Jewish synagogue at the time of Jesus would implore and instruct their people, their congregation, to give to the needy, to pray regularly, and to fast. This is why Jesus is going to address those three ideas. Here at Westgate, if you've been around for a while, uh, you've probably heard us talk a lot about our desire to be formed and transformed by God into the sort of people who love God, love our neighbor, and love one another. If you've been around a little while, you've heard that before, right? Those are the pillars of our church community. And there are all sorts of expressions of that, like practical expressions. That's why we do hygiene kits. It's why we offer kids camp for kids. It's all because we are trying to love God, love our neighbor, and love one another. So in a first century Jewish synagogue, an equivalent of that would have been give to the needy, pray, and fast. And so Jesus is addressing these common practices of righteousness in his day. What's really interesting, though, is that Jesus addresses these practices by beginning with, don't do this to be seen by others. Again, Matthew 6, 1, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. That phrase, to be seen, in the original language, ancient Greek, is one word. It is the Greek word, theathenai, theathenai. And theathenai comes from the same root word from which we get the English word theater. So essentially what Jesus is saying is when you practice your spirituality, when you try to live in right relationship with God and with others, do not be theatrical. In other words, do not put on a performance. In other words, 
It's not performative behavior. You are not an actor seeking the applause and adoration of an audience. And then he gets into each of the three practices. First, giving to the needy. Verses 2 to 4, Jesus says this. When you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. What a strange passage. And Jesus says a lot of stuff in here that's just, let's be honest, it's kind of weird. He says, when you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets. I mean, is he being literal here? Like in the first century Jewish world, did Jewish people take shofars, like the ram's horn Jewish trumpet, and blow them on the streets when they gave to the needy? Is that what they did? Like, here you go, right? Is that what they did? No, that's not what they did. But this is actually a brilliant play on words by Jesus. You know, you heard that video and Lisa talk about these hygiene kits. This is something we do every year here. It's one of many expressions we have of trying our best to love our neighbors, particularly our, the neighbors in our midst who are lacking, you know, shelter and sort of basic goods. So how do we do it? How do we do it? We get up here and we say, hey, this is the week we're doing hygiene kits. And so everybody go out, go to Target or whatever, and buy everything on that list and just bring a pack so that we can, like, get these hygiene kits out to folks in our city who really need it. Okay, and we do that together, right? And you all bring the hygiene kits here. And the re one of the reasons we do that is because there is a power in the collective. You know, you all individually could go out and sort of randomly do that anytime you want to. But when we do it together, we get hundreds of hygiene kits. And we're able to go really shower folks in our city with love. Okay, in the first century Jewish world, it was very similar. So when in local cities and towns, people would give to the needy, typically they didn't like take their coins. Remember, this was a culture when they used coins monetarily. They didn't take their coins individually and just give to beggars on the streets. What most Jewish cities and towns, the way it worked was the people would gather every week in the synagogue, and then in every synagogue was a giving box. And this giving box was intended for the people in that city and town who loved God and wanted to love their neighbor. They would bring their money, their coins, and they would drop the coins in the giving box. And then the local synagogue would gather that money and then give it to the needy. That's how it worked. Now, here's why Jesus' words here are brilliant. The giving box in almost every synagogue was made out of ram's horn. Ram's horn is the same material that is, that is used to make a shofar. And a shofar is a traditional Jewish trumpet. So what Jesus is saying, because what would happen at the time, people would walk into the synagogue, they would take their coin, and instead of like gently dropping it into the giving box, what would some of them do? They would like slam it down and you'd hear the coin clanging around in the ram's horn. It's like, king, 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 so that everybody knows, like, you see that? I'm a generous guy. What Jesus is saying is, stop giving as performance. 
Stop dropping your coin in the giving box so everyone in town knows how generous you are. That's why he says, do not announce it with trumpets. Brilliant. Brilliant. Instead, he says, this is what the hypocrites do. Some of you know this already, but the original word, uh, the Greek word for hypocrites, it's a word that actually means an actor or someone who puts on a mask, right, which actors at that time would often do. And so it's in line with what he said earlier about don't do this to be seen, theater. Don't be an actor. Don't be a fake. Don't put on a mask. Don't try to perform. Don't do the stuff of righteousness, right relationship with God and others so that you can get the applause of audiences, the credit or the acclaim, right? He's essentially saying, as he says in verse 3, so weird, do it in such a way that your left hand doesn't know what your right hand is doing, which is so strange. What does that even mean? Um, the late, great Dallas Willard has a beautiful explanation about this, sort of a long quote, but it's so helpful. Let me read it to you. He says this. He explains that line this way about the left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing. The kind of people who have been so transformed by their daily walk with God that good deeds naturally flow from their character are precisely the kind of people whose left hand would not notice what their right hand is doing. As, for example, when driving one's own car or speaking one's native language. What they do, they do naturally, often automatically, simply because of what they are, what they are pervasively and internally. These are people who do not have to invest a lot of reflection in doing good for others. Their deeds are in secret no matter who is watching for they are absorbed in the love of God and of those around them. That's what it means to give generously and to do anything that pursues right relationship in such a way that your left hand doesn't know what your right hand is doing. Again, this entire teaching is so convicting for me. Because in my home, even in my home, with my own family, my own wife, Sometimes there's tension in my marriage because I start keeping checklists. Like Jenny will say, hey, like, I need you to be a little more helpful today. Can you do the dishes? In my worst moments, you know what I think to myself? Do the dishes. Woman, do you know how many things I've done today? You know, like, and then I just keep a checklist of like, but I've done this, and I've done this, and I've done this, and I've done this. And then I'm, by God's grace, usually, usually by God's grace, I have this moment where it's like, I should probably not say what I'm thinking. That's not going to end well. And more importantly, I should put that aside and know that it's a lie. That's not how a life of love really works. But often that's what I want to do. I want to keep record. And it's like a transaction. Like, why would you want me to do X when I've done already done Y and Z? That's not how a life of love works. Right? Most of us, if not all of us, know that and we understand that. And so Jesus is essentially saying, can you pursue being the sort of person who operates and lives and serves and gives out of the abundant love of God in such a way that you give as God gave you. In other words, keeping no records. 
Imagine if God kept record, if God kept a checklist. Imagine if God's grace and his love in your life and in my life was dependent on transaction. That once I do X, Y, and Z, then God will do X, Y, and Z. We would all be doomed. So as Willard says, can we become the sort of people who are so absorbed in the love of God and of those around us that it's like our left hand doesn't even know what our right hand is doing. We're just expressing love with no desire for Um, acknowledgement or to be seen or uh, to get the credit or to be applauded. Jesus continues in verses five and six. He talks about prayer and he says, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. There's that word again. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have already received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Here in this passage, the phrase to be seen is actually a different word. It is a single word, but it's not theothenai, but it is connected. It's a Greek word that literally means to shine a light upon. So you see what Jesus is doing here. He's building imagery. He's essentially saying, initially he said, don't do this stuff to be seen, to put on theater, a show. And then he says, when you pray, don't pray, don't like flaunt your spirituality to have a spotlight shine on you so people know how good of a Christian you are. Now in the Silicon Valley, like this is not really a temptation for most of us, right? But the, the foundational truth beneath it is a temptation, I would suggest probably for all of us. We want to be seen in a particular light. We want to be seen in such a way that people look at us and they, they admire us and they applaud us. And, you know, we are very skilled at the humble brag, most of us. So we, we're not like, we don't flaunt it. But there's something in us that wants it. Whether it's in your workplace or your home or in your social circles or whatever it might be. We want the spotlight in some form or fashion to shine on us. And Jesus is essentially saying, when you pray, when you practice anything spiritual, any sort of formational endeavor, and in some ways, all that we do is spiritual, all that we do is formational, Jesus is saying, don't seek the spotlight when you do. Again, this teaching is so convicting. These words of Jesus are so convicting for me, because for for me, like me personally, Jay, a part of my job involves literal spotlights. Like there are literal spotlights shining on me right now. And all of you have been sitting there, whether you pay attention or not, doesn't matter. You've at least been sitting there, at least acting like you're giving me your undivided attention for 23 minutes. You guys, that is not normal. Like nobody should sit and listen to Jay talk for 35 minutes every Sunday. That's ridiculous. Now at my best... In my, in my deepest moments of really, truly understanding the love of God, I do what I do standing beneath spotlights because I love God and I love you and I believe his word has power to transform all of us into Christ-likeness. That's why I do what I do at my best. But at my worst, when my brokenness and my sin and my insecurity take a hold of me, 
I do what I do for, with all sorts of ulterior motive. And some of you know my story. Some of you have heard this before, but I wasn't born here. I was born in South Korea and moved here when I was very young. But when my mom sent me to first grade, I did not speak or read a lick of English. So all the way until like halfway through second grade, for a year and a half, I was completely alone and ostracized, made fun of, didn't understand what was happening, right? Like had no friends and I just lived this like really lonely life where I couldn't even communicate with my teachers or my classmates. Okay, that was my upbringing until I was like, you know, eight or something. So at my worst, you know why I do what I do? Because I want to rub it in the faces of those little kids who made fun of me that now people pay me to speak English. <laughs> and that is terrible. That's horrible. And every time I feel that way, I have to ask God by his spirit to untangle me from these ulterior motives born out of my own brokenness, my own insecurity, my own sin, and the sins of others. I have to ask God by his spirit to remind me this has nothing to do with finding some sort of affirmation of my own worth, some sort of affirmation of my own value, because that actually comes a different way. We'll talk about that a little bit later. I share that with you. It's not easy to share. It's actually quite embarrassing, to be honest. But I share that with you because my guess is that something like that is true in many of our lives. And all of us are skilled enough, we're sophisticated enough as sinners to fake it till we make it. The reality is most of you have no idea you have no idea if I'm saying the words I'm saying right now because driven by a love for God and you and his word in hopes that God by his spirit would change and transform us into the people he longs for us to be or if I'm saying everything I'm saying right now just to prove a point. You don't know. But God knows. God knows. And God sees. So what is that thing in your life? What is that thing driven by brokenness and sin and insecurity? What is that deep, dark desire in you to have the spotlight shine on you in such a way to try to uh, like prop up your insecurity on these flimsy stilts of others' accolades and applause? Jesus is saying, you don't need that because I already see you. We'll get to that in a moment. And then finally, he talks about fasting. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head, wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. That word disfigure, is a, literally, it's a word that means make ugly. Going back to that story of being totally, um, you know, unacknowledged in Mexico, what do you think I did the rest of that afternoon as I was building that wall on that house? What do you think I did? I acted like a tennis player. Just every swing of the hammer was like, Ugh! you know what I mean? 
Like, you know, you watch Wimbledon and like every swing and they're not faking it, it's real. But like every tennis player is like, they like groan and grunt when they swing. Cause like they're exerting. So I didn't really need to do that. I'm not like a very strong guy. I was hammering these tiny little hammer nails, but I was like, oh, like even when I would stop to drink water, I just wanted everyone to know how, how, how much pain I was in. So I'd like swig the water like, oh, right? Like, just because I, wa- I needed everyone to know how much I was suffering for the Lord, you know? I just needed, I disfigured myself. Because I need, I just craved the acknowledgement. And Jesus is saying, you don't need to do that. In fact, you shouldn't do that. Because at the end of the day, this isn't about like some relentless pursuit of anonymity. It's primarily about asking the question, Who gets the glory here? And I love Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and he's actually addressing a very specific topic, but then he has this wonderful line. He's actually addressing a very specific topic at the time about eating and drinking particular foods. But then he says this, whether you eat or drink, and then this line, or whatever you do, anything you do, parenting your kids, Loving your spouse, turning in that TPS report at work on time, going to the DMV, grocery shopping, going out for coffee with a friend, writing a memoir, painting a painting, going for a walk, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Not for your glory, not for the accolades, not for the applause, not for the acknowledgement, not so that you receive credit, not so that you can prop up your own insecurity or try to cover over your own brokenness with your own efforts, but no, do it all for the glory of God. All of it, whatever you do. So I wanna give you a few questions, practical questions to ask yourself, today and maybe this week, when, if and when you experience those temptations to get the glory, to receive the applause or the acknowledgement or the credit, ask yourself these questions. First, why do I need the credit, really? What deeper desire am I trying to satisfy? Why do I need this credit, why? What deep desire am I trying to satisfy? You know, this is one of the reasons why, for example, what Lisa shared earlier, serving at kids camp, as an example, is like so profound. You have an impact on the lives of young kids and the data, the stats tell us that when a child makes a decision for Christ before the age of 12, that's the, that's the highest likelihood that they will follow Jesus through their life. So that's the age group we're trying to reach with these summer camps. And here's the thing. Men and women who give an entire week of their lives at summer camp, man, they're heroes, but they're anonymous. Like, do you know the roster of people who are going to serve at summer camp? You don't. Unless you're one of them, you probably don't know a single person who's serving during summer camp. But here's what I can tell you. God is going to use those men and women who receive no credit, no applause, and you don't know them. God will use them to literally reshape an eternity. This this is why we ask you to jump in. It's not just because we need warm bodies. It's because we believe it's formative for you. 
You find meaning and joy and purpose in the midst of serving in those types of environments and ways that are really, really fascinating. Why do I need the credit? What deeper desire am I trying to satisfy? A second question, where might I be without the grace, goodness, and love of God? Like, yeah, sure, I have this great opportunity. Yes, I have the skills and the abilities to do X, Y, and Z. And I should receive the credit, but pause and ask yourself, but where might I be if it were not for God's grace, his goodness, his love? The reality is you would not be there with that opportunity, with those abilities, those skills. And finally, ask yourself the question, okay, how might this situation be different if it weren't for God? If God were not a part of my life, if God were not a part of this, how might it be different? These questions help to reorient us, not around our own glory, but God's glory. I'm going to invite Mark and the team back up, and we're going to sing and respond together here in a moment. But I want to I encourage you with this. Because in some ways, this desire to be seen and to be known the desire itself is not bad. Like maybe you're sitting there and for the last 30 minutes you've been, you've been thinking to yourself, okay, Jay, I sort of understand what you're saying, but honestly, man, I feel so unseen. I feel so unknown. I feel so alone and broken and isolated. Like what you're talking about, Jay, is not the problem. The problem is that I feel like you, not now, but back when you were in first grade, just out on the margins. The beauty and the power of directing our efforts toward the glory of God is that in doing so, that deep longing to be noticed, to be seen, be known is fulfilled in the most meaningful way. There's a Christian psychologist and author named Kurt Thompson. He's got this uh, several fantastic books and he's got this incredible line that has always stuck with me and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but essentially Kurt Thompson, he's not just talking poetically, he's using like, this is the world of psychology and um, sort of neuroscience. He says, every human being is born into the world looking for someone, looking for them. When a baby is born into the world, this is one of the reasons why they do like skin to skin touch for a newborn with their parents, right? Because that child needs to know, oh, this is, this. they don't even have a conception, but like this is my mother, this is my father, there's love here, I'm seen, I'm known. That longing never goes away. So maybe that's you today. Maybe you're like, man, I feel totally unseen, unacknowledged, alone, isolated. Even if the world has forgotten you, even a culture at large, even if those who in your life should have loved you fail to do so adequately, what does the story tell us? Matthew 6, over and over again. Your father who sees. Your father who sees. Your father who knows. Your father who sees. You are seen by God. You have the affection and the love and the commitment of the only one who matters. Even if no one else on the planet sees you, you don't need to strive and struggle to be acknowledged 
The God of the universe sees you. And here within the church, we exist. Remember, one of our pillars is to love one another. That means that we exist in part to stop seeking the spotlight for ourselves and to express the love of God to one another by seeing one another, by seeing those who feel most unseen. God sees you, and we see you. You don't need to seek being seen through your effort by proving a point. You're seen, you're known, you're loved. So as a means of surrendering our hearts to God, to that incredible truth, surrendering our desire to be acknowledged to God, to receive the reality that he sees us, let's stand and sing and respond together.